morning and welcome to the Transparency Project radio podcast on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides, suspicious deaths, and other topics of interest to our audience. My name is Denny Griffin. I'll be your host today and my co-host, normal co-host, Delilah Jones, has the day off. Uh, Before we get into today's program, I just want to update the audience on uh, something from our last show. We discussed trying to get legislation introduced to address the issues of what we're calling the cold case epidemic. And we have came from various at this working on legislation. This will be to address case up by implementing case. We are base because it's difficult to try fifty uh, to to introduce legislation. So we'd like to do something at a national level. So uh, we're working on that, and uh, I'll be updating that as as we progress. Today's program is the second in the series in which we'll discuss what survivors of victims of murder and suspicious death can do to promote legislation that will help to balance the playing field and ways to keep their cases in the public eye. Our panelists for this show are Larry Young and John O'Brien. Larry Young graduated from Southern Illinois University in 1974 with a degree in industrial technology. For several years, he served on the police and fire merit board. He's president of the Molly Young Memorial Foundation and oversees the closed Facebook group, Justice for Molly, which has over 22,000 members. Justice for Molly website. Larry was the driving force behind the 16 Illinois legislation known as Molly's Law and is currently working on additional legislation. John O'Brien was reporter for the Post-Year newspaper and Search.com and served in New York for 30 years. The last 10 is an investigative reporter. He's a five-time winner of New York State Bar Association Award for Legal Cover a 12-time winner of writing awards from the Associated Press of New York State and the New York Newspaper Publishers Association, including an in-depth award for supporting new evidence in the Heidi Allen case. He's co-author of the true crime book, Goodbye, My Little Ones, published in 27. His career as a reporter, a job as an investor in the Federal Public Defender's Office, where he has worked in 2019, the Syracuse Club inducted into its wall of protection. Larry and John, welcome to the show. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks for having me. Please, uh, let me start with you. And if you would tell us about Molly and her story, and then we'll get into the Molly's Law. Well, uh, Molly was a talented artist and uh, she actually won uh, national awards uh, at Carnegie Hall and and she also uh, won the U.S. Department of Education hung her work on the wall of the U.S. Department of Education for a year. Uh, she was a very caring, compassionate person and didn't, you know, she was uh, not a real outgoing, you know, aggressive person or anything. Uh, she was uh, most people, she affected the people, the lives of a lot of people. In fact, someone recently told me she was even a ray of sunshine when she came into the store he worked in. And uh, she just, uh, she uh, she cared for people. And uh, her, uh, I don't know how much you want me to get into the case itself. Uh, she was found in a Carbondale Police Dispatcher's apartment with a gunshot in the top of her head. And he called it in as a drug overdose. And he was supposed to be at work two hours before he called it in. Uh, We've been fighting. He had two six-inch scratches on his side, backside. And uh, we've been fighting like Molly fought for her life at the time. We've been fighting ever since for over eight years to get justice. We've uh, tried everything we know to get the local authorities to to do something about it. It's uh, there's 19 lab tests that prove that it wasn't suicide; it was a homicide. 
the case has been ruled undetermined by a coroner's jury, and uh, but the forensic facts weren't presented to the coroner's jury, uh, so we don't know. The case is left open for further evidence to surface, but there seems to be no investigation for the last seven years. So we've been fighting ever since then, and, and the process got Molly's law passed and and uh, working on other laws. Larry, the, the Molly's law, uh, we'll get into this in more detail during the show, but um, that accomplished several things. Uh, could you name two or three of the uh, what you consider the most important aspects of Molly's Law? Well, as we got into it, uh, we found that uh, the laws needed to be uh, changed in two different statutes to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish. And one statute was the wrongful death statute. It uh, increased the statute of limitations from two years to five years in wrongful death because of uh, the wrongful death statute seems to be written more in terms of medical malpractice than it does in criminal cases because uh, obviously the prosecutor is supposed to handle a criminal case and you shouldn't, a uh, victim's family shouldn't be having to do that. So what they did for the victim's family to have time to uh, follow Freedom of Information Act, they increased it from two to five years so because a lot of times they withhold the information because it's active and ongoing the first year or two. So the second part of that, Molly's Law, had to change the FOIA because in the process of us uh, submitting a, a for requesting information from, for the Freedom of Information Act for, from public bodies, uh, they were denying us uh, uh, un, they, they were not doing it according to the statute, according to what the Attorney General wrote in his letter. So what we got changed there was uh, that the penalty would be increased from 2500 to 10000 and $1,000 a day every day that they withheld the information that they were legally obligated to provide. And that certainly was needed, and that's a, a really uh, very upsetting to me personally, and I'm sure obviously to you and a lot of the survivors out there of the difficulty in trying to get records and get information released. Uh, in his case, eight years or so, we've had, we have cases that go back uh, 50 years. And the, the people, the survivors, have been battling the system for all that time. And, of course, they want to keep the case alive. They're not giving up, and they're still trying to get answers and get justice. Um, well, I, and, my, my, uh, what I have a problem with is if, if the laws are written where uh, a, a uh, suspect has the right to remain silent immediately after being taken into custody, then why doesn't the victim have the right to due process to to an, a full investigation? Uh, they, they certainly should. Uh, John, if if, uh, if a survivor wants to keep their deceased loved one's story in the public eye, uh, one of the ways it seems that that could be done would be through an investigative reporter. Uh, right. If you would, could you explain the difference between a reporter and an investigative reporter? Because uh, I think there's a little bit of a difference between the two. There's, there definitely is a difference. Um, a reporter, say a beat reporter or a general assigned reporter, usually gets their stories from the public agency, police, uh, public officials, political people, and just reports what they have what what they're saying uh, an investigative reporter does his or her own work and uh, files a lot of FOIA requests uh, does interviews on his or her own um, and doesn't only uh, rely on what the police or the public officials are telling them so they're not just regurgitating that information they're 
digging and, and publishing their, what they've found themselves. They're obviously, that's what I call investigators. Um, and there's usually, I say, a few at, at most um, local newspapers, um, although there are few, a lot fewer now because of the way things, that the Internet has changed things and the, most newspapers were decimated you know, financially, so they're very short-staffed. It's really hard to find a, a good investigative reporter now, but they're out there. And I have to say that I, I, there are very few at TV stations, local TV stations, I mean, not nationally, but local. Um, I just, maybe it's my bias, but they're usually more, they have short attention spans. Um, and I guess the, the way to look for a, an investigative reporter, I mean, they may, they, they may be described that way online. That, that may be one way, but a lot of times they're not. Um, I think the best way to look for one is to look for the, the reporter who's publishing stories that show he or she has done, done their own digging and who have ticked off the um, people in power for revealing things that, that those people didn't want the public to know. Um, so that's the difference between the two. Um, do you want me to talk about how to approach those reporters? Or Yes, I, I do, but uh, be, before you do, I just wanted to comment here or actually say something and, and get your comment um, do you feel that uh, particularly I think in a smaller town or smaller area that the local newspapers or local TV uh, TV reporters uh, because they rely on these public agencies such as the police department or sheriff's department for their information for a lot of their information that they would be less inclined to want to dig uh, and, and, and possibly, you know, scrutinize the police activity or the police uh, investigation of a particular case because they don't want to lose their sources. They don't want to alienate themselves from the, uh, from their sources of information in the, in the county or in the city. Yeah, absolutely. That's true all over. Um, it's sort of a conflict of interest. Um, for the newspaper or the you know other media outlet, um, so I mean this happened to me. I was doing a, a bunch of stories about the local district attorney for all different things that were um, questionable, and uh, he didn't like it one bit. And he actually came into our my, our office and sat down with the editors and said, "Here's all the stories O'Brien did. I want to talk about every one of them." And they said, "Well, is there a correction we need to write?" He said, "No, but he's biased or something." So um, I'm sorry to say that I feel like they kind of backed down after that. I mean, they wouldn't say you can't write about them anymore, but they were, you know, leery of what they, what he told them was a bias. It wasn't. I was just getting more tips about them because of the previous stories I wrote. But yes, it is absolutely a problem. Um, <clears throat> I would like to so add to that. We had an investigative reporter report on our case and was doing a pretty good job at getting the truth out there. And he wrote about 20 or 30 stories and uh, he, uh, and, uh, let, he left the newspaper finally. And when he came back a year later, that deleted all of our sto his stories out of the archive that were oh, Molly. What? Yes. What? On what grounds? You can't. Well, I can't find out the grounds, but all the stories I, I made copies of all of them myself before they did it. I knew that they that typically around Southern Illinois, that's how they do. Even the local news stations don't even have their in their archives. If you search for Molly Young, you won't find it because they took it completely out. Wow, I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, the only time that ever happened that I've seen is when someone points out that a story is just wrong, it's inaccurate, and I mean, that's no, pretty rare. Is, yeah. So this this is my purpose. In fact, we figured out what they were doing. They were doing it, some of them within a month or two, taking them out. So we started uh, capturing the stories ourselves, the videos and the and the newspaper clippings. We took. I got a whole four-inch binder of all the newspaper clippings on Molly's story because I realized they were starting to do that. What newspaper is it? Well, it's um, there's two or three newspapers in Southern Illinois that do it, but uh, this was called the Carbondale Times in the town that it actually happened in. Uh, 
they uh, he published uh, he had had a go like editorials on the not editorials but actually front page uh, stories on the case and he sent me a private message when he went back and he said unfortunately they they've, they've uh, deleted all my stories on Molly out of the archive. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just I quickly googled it and you're right. There's nothing from the Carbondale Times. <laughs> yeah, so they did twenty. Wow. He did at least twenty, maybe thirty uh, articles trying to help us get justice because he 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 got the he FOIAed the records before we even knew what FOIA was, and he got a lot of the records and started publishing the uh, critical, like the first responding officer let him wash his hands and change clothes at the scene. He published that uh, uh, report that he got through FOIA. You know, he published a lot of critical things that. What happened in the case, and he also interviewed the chief investigator, and he told him that they gave him a lot of latitudes they shouldn't have, and that they didn't. They were waiting on lab tests and stuff like that. He he put he he did really good reporting on it, not and it wasn't biased in our favor. It was really both, you know, both ways. And so it sounds like I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was told the reason they did it. Another company bought out that newspaper. Hmm. It sounds like the police were upset about it and went to the editor. And, is that like they would have Police chief. Because of our case. They, what? They, they fired the police chief because of oh. our case. He, he oh. says it. That's when they fired him. Wow. Two I mean, years after you it might, happened. What's that, sir? Two years after it happened, they fired the police chief, and he went on a local station. I got a, I captured that one too, and saying that uh, he thinks it's because of Molly's case that he was fired. Well, it sounds like he should have been. Um, have you well, thought about want, going to a local? Firing, I want justice. <laughs> you know, firing everybody involved in our case. We had, I don't know, supposedly a suicide and. Uh, as what they originally started to promote, and uh, they had 35 police officers involved, 15 local and 20 state, and uh, well, all of those are gone now. They're all gone. They they either took early retirement, took a demotion. One of the chief investigator took a demotion to trooper, but it still doesn't give us justice. You know, no. it's like saying, oh, "Well, we'll just get rid of the problem, and then we'll, uh, you know." He'll, 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 that'll satisfy him. Molly's law will satisfy him. That'll satisfy him. That, that, all that's a uh, means to an end. Yeah. Uh, justice is, uh, is certainly, uh, you know, the goal everyone, or not everyone, obviously, but everyone should have. And that just doesn't seem to be the case uh, because there are, you know, the other, the cases that I've been involved with uh, directly and indirectly, uh, it's, it's really you know, frustrating and scary. And I've got to say this right now with the, generally speaking, now I, I know each state is a little bit different, so I, I can't say every state, but uh, a lot of the things we run into is for these FOIA requests. When, when you uh, send a FOIA request to a police agency, if it's considered to still be an open case. And it doesn't necessarily have to be active. And, and I know, Larry, that Molly's Law addressed this in, in Illinois, but uh, generally speaking, the, as long as the case is just considered open, they have what they call the open case exemption from FOIA or whatever the, the law is in that particular state for uh, release of information, whatever sunshine law. And they can deny that. So you have the police agency that may uh, have reasons other than legitimate reasons. They may have reasons as far as the uh, reputation of the agency or individual officers and so on. Um, they may have something to hide, yet they're the ones that get to say what can or can't be released. So it's, it's kind of like the uh, fox guarding the chicken coop. Uh, and it, it really is maddening. Uh, trying to fight the system and overcome this seems like they have obstacle after obstacle after obstacle and 
that's why I think, too, the investigative reporting is so critical because one individual, uh, a mother or father or the son or daughter of a, of a victim, uh, that's one voice. If, if you can sway public opinion, though, I think through keeping the story out there and bringing it to the attention of the public, uh, that might be one way to exert a little pressure on the authorities and, and get them to do something that they really don't want to do. Uh, what do you think about that, John? Does the if, if a, okay, let, let's just take Molly's case for example. If uh, if that gets a lot of coverage through the the press or the the TV media, can that have an impact on the politicians and so forth, and 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 maybe get them to do things uh, that they would not otherwise do? Yeah, absolutely, and I've had a couple of cases where that happened, but the, 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 the stories I was writing was not just about the case, but about the police agency's refusal to release information under FOIL. Um, I had the two cases with the state police here like that, took one of them to all the way to court, and the judge ordered them to release them, and that's finally how they did it. Another case where I was writing stories about how um, actually so ridiculous it was. Years later, they were still denying access to the family request to get access to the file. And the story about their the state police's refusal to release is what got them released. So the, the publicity should not only be about the case, but about the refusal to release the information. That, that ticks people off, um, and that gets politicians' attention. And it embarrasses the police. So they, that some, sometimes works. Sometimes they don't even care. So I mean, I don't know what to say, but it's worth the try. Yeah, it has worked. Uh, well, so in our four-year pro- in our four-year process, we have two letters of determination by the attorney general's uh, PAC officer, public access counselor. I don't know if they call it in other states that, but we've had two letters of determination and one binding opinion saying they violated the FOIA Act and they need to turn the records over and they turned them over on one letter of determination. They turned them over on the binding opinion but the last letter of determination we got they refused to turn them over. And that's and, it? That's uh, where it ended? Pardon? Is that where it ended? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's where it ended because uh, we I, I sent them letters with, I sent a copy of that letter to them two or three times requesting that them to turn it over, and they still wouldn't turn it over. Uh, it's and you can get injunctive relief by going to court and paying a lawyer twenty thousand dollars or something, whatever however long it takes. We tried to, you know, that in wrongful death that cost us about fifteen thousand. Uh, you know, the money it costs the victim is ridiculous, and we're that's why we're also pushing for a victim's compensation fund, so a victim can hire their own attorney to represent the victim, the victim's family can because. Right now, if you look at the charges, it says people of the state of Illinois or whatever state you're from. It doesn't say the victim or the victim's family they're representing. The state's attorney doesn't represent the victim. Hmm. The victim has no representation unless the family right. member takes it on. Well, in, in like one of the cases I was just talking about, the family was wor- – I was working with the family who came to me for help, and I – you know, we were a newspaper, so we could afford to pay lawyers, and that's how we were able to go to court to get the records, not right. just for us, but for the family. So, I mean, again, sometimes the media can help. But yeah. Shouldn't the victim have the access to uh, oh. the same as the public defender? I mean, shouldn't the victim be able to get a, a lawyer paid for through victim's compensation? And uh, we, we, yeah. we, we tried to get that law passed about three years ago. And uh, that's that would help a lot is if the victim had somebody representing them that that was in the legal field. So representing the victim's family uh, for the yeah, purpose the victim's of getting family. access to records for the purpose of getting the victim access has to no records. voice. They're, they're, the, the deceased victim has no voice. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm just trying to throw things out there, what needs to be changed. Uh, nobody's stood up for the victims in the past years because we didn't have FOIA. We didn't have a camera in our pocket. We never had uh, the legal rights to do it, you know, so uh, social media, I mean, networking. We, we never had yeah. any of that 20, 
20 years ago. And all these years it's been going on and nobody knew it. Well, prosecutors are supposed to stand up for the victim, but then you run into cases where they're not willing to do what they're supposed to do. And that's right. That's when the family. Well, I have, that's another law that I have a problem with prosecutorial immunity and prosecutorial uh, sole discretion to decide mm-hmm. if a crime's been committed. He's not the judge and jury. Right. The prosecutor should have the uh, have the total leeway to decide whether a crime's been committed when uh, and nobody overlook over his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Right. He shouldn't have sole discretion to determine that. That should be a, a, a that's bypassing the judge and jury, the whole judicial system. Yeah. Uh, John, how uh, speaking um, as an investigative reporter, if if a family wanted to get coverage to to get someone interested in in their case or like you say not just that specific case but the issues surrounding the case such as uh, laws maybe that need to be changed and police lack of cooperation lack of transparency all that kind of stuff what how would they approach or how should they approach the reporter and what should they say or what should they do to, that would catch the reporter's attention? Well, I mean, they they should call and not just have a kind of a vague, you know, claim that the police aren't doing their jobs, the prosecutors aren't doing their jobs. If they have something uh, that they can show or or some fact they can tell the reporter to that, that sort of corroborates what they're saying, whether it's, a document of some kind or um, names of people to in, the reporter can interview to, to corroborate what, the, what they're saying. I mean, that's when the reporter says, okay, I can do something right now to check this out, even if it's just a very small thing. Um, but, you know, reporters, investigative reporters have to make decisions on what stories to pursue. And if, if they just don't have anything, any place to go to, to make that, quick determination, they might pass over that story, and they have to pass over some stories. Um, I, I had a case that ended up consuming me for five years that, that uh, in the beginning, I was able to um, talk to, well, the kidnapping case from 25 years ago, two brothers were charged, one was convicted, one was acquitted. 20 years later, I get a tip that the three real kidnappers have been bragging about this for years. So the, the, the acquitted brother happened to keep five box banker boxes of records from his case. Um, then I worked with a lawyer for the convicted brother to go through those. And there was a gold mine and it showed that the police were covering up um, the, the real kidnappers for, for their own reason. But anyway, it, the records the guy kept were just, you know, gems of information. And that's, that's what got me involved. So, yeah, have something you can give to the reporter if you can. Uh, let, me, let me ask you this, John. Uh, Dateline came to Carbondale on our case for a week, and uh, they reopened it when they, before they got here. They heard they were coming, and they opened the case. Hmm. Uh, Dateline would never report on our case, even though they did a whole story on it, because they said it either had to be come to completion on their, uh, you know, on the actual case, either case be closed or come to trial. Do you know if that's accurate or? Well, I don't know about Dateline. That seems ridiculous, though. I mean, why would they have to do that? Um, well, in 48 fact, Hours has told me the same thing. 48 Hours has told me the same thing. I've talked to their producers many times. Well, uh, I can tell you that the team- They said because of they're such a large a company, a large organization that they don't want to artificially influence a small area's, uh, you know, justice. Well, that's and lawsuits they could get sued if they. Oh, that's you know. just ridiculous. I don't, I don't follow that thinking at all. And the case I was just talking about about the two brothers who were, in my opinion, wrongly, wrongfully charged with this kidnapping. Dateline did come and do a story, and they published it, and the, the, the brother who was trying to get out, who was trying to prove his innocence, um, his case was still pending when he died in prison. 
and we were convinced we were going to get them out the bench, you know, within, the, you know, maybe a year. But they, they ran that story, and it, it was there was no finality huh. to, to that piece of it. Now, he was convicted year, 25 years ago, but that's not what the story was about. It was about the new evidence against these new uncharged people, and they, they had no problem with that. So, I don't know. It didn't sound like it's something a little contradictory, what, the, what you're telling me. Well, the real problem is uh, Dateline interviewed a witness that seen the suspect running out of his apartment uh, that morning before he called 911, about two hours, three hours before he called 911, and uh, had him on camera, video recording him, and they're afraid of the police, so they won't interview with the police. Oh. Oh. Well, that's, so, that's when a problem. I called and asked yeah. about that, he said it was copyrighted material, and he couldn't give me the video recorded interview, although he did tell the special prosecutor about it. They've and still never interviewed that person. They never interviewed the guys themselves, the police or the prosecutor? No, the prosecutor has never interviewed that person. Police haven't. I'm, uh, I, I don't, they're afraid of the police, so they won't hardly answer the door. One time they went and they didn't answer the door. Oh, okay. But mm. they have it on video recorded interview with Dateline. Mm. That, that what really happened that morning, and she told another news agency on and uh, you know incognito interview the same thing. The, the same witness. Same and, witness, yeah. And did that was that published or aired? Yeah, that was that, aired. But that but her name wasn't used. Pardon? Right. You said incognito. You mean her name was not used or? or yeah, her black, name was not used. And, uh, blacked out her face. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I don't see why the police wouldn't do everything they can to interview her. That doesn't. That's kind of crazy. Um, again, a lawyer would be helpful. Um, well, that's case. another problem. Some uh, attorneys won't take a case for a victim; they'll take it for a suspect. One, in fact, one large law firm told me that it'd be a conflict of interest for them to defend the victim. Because all their people are suspects. All the people they get hard by, there's nobody standing up for the victims, what I'm trying to say. That there's yeah, no, no, I don't. There's no lawyers even want to take the case because then they got to get before that same prosecutor uh, defending a suspect. Yeah. There's you know, no money it, it, it seems... It seems to, yeah, everything's about money one way or the other, but yeah. it, it seems to me when you take, now John mentioned earlier that... Um, when he was working for the newspaper, they had money to be able to involve attorneys. Uh, for example, yeah, that's fight good. The, that's you know, the FOIA. What's amazing? But, but take, front page, take, on, take on the front page of the Southern Illinois newspaper today. In fact, the Southern Illinois newspaper is suing the local law enforcement agency because uh, they uh, violated FOIA, they believe, and they're suing them to get the records right now. That just came out today on the front page of the paper. Was that a, what kind yeah. of case? Was it a criminal case? Or? Pardon? What What are the records involving? The, a criminal case? There's a 27, I don't know the exact, it's about 20 or 30 years ago, a woman was stabbed to death uh, okay. closing up a Bonanza restaurant mm -hmm. and uh, they found her body somewhere else and they know it's a murder yeah uh, they're the family member the closest family member who i don't see that she was named executor at all as daughter i think as uh still she's fighting too because the newspaper does a cold case story once a year and they chose that one to do so they foiled the records to get the information and they, they refused to give them anything under the idea that it was active and ongoing. Well, there's no, mm -hmm. the daughter says there's been no investigation going on for the last six or eight years. Mm. Well, that's good news. So, if, you, if, you, if you look up the Southern Illinois newspaper, it's right on the front page. Uh, uh, but when, when you're not, when you don't have the resources of a newspaper or a big organization behind you, you know, the average person can't come up with thousands and thousands of dollars to retain counsel. 
Um, no. It, because, you, of course, there's, you know, there's no money in it. Like, you know, a personal injury attorney, if there's a, a recovery in a lawsuit, they, they stand to gain financially. But when, when there's not that kind of financial reward at the end of the line, they're going to want to get paid for their hours uh, and, and time. And the, the average uh, person doesn't have the resources to be able to do that. So the, the individual survivors are really in a bad place, uh, you know, as, as far as pursuing any of this stuff, because they just don't have the resources to, to do it themselves, uh, you know, to pay for it themselves. And, and the, the system is set up where everything is in favor or everything is against, let me put it that way. Everything seems to be stacked against the survivors or the victims. Uh, right. And it, it just isn't right. You know, and then there's been a lot of talk, obviously, over the past few months about police reforms. And this seems to me that this might be the time to pursue these issues we're talking about um, not wanting to defund the police or any of that stuff, but to, just to point out and try to get the politicians interested in these other problems as part of this police reform efforts everybody's uh, uh, talking about. Uh, I don't know, but that, that seems to make sense. This might be the time that you would get a more sympathetic ear uh, because a lot of the politicians are already under pressure about police reform. So even though these issues aren't what most of the anger and most of the protests and all that are about, they still, I think, uh, do involve police transparency. And, and this might be the time to try to get something done. What do you guys think? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in New York, they, um, because of all the uproar uh, across the country, they uh, eliminated um, a law that protected uh, police officers from um, ever having their um, disciplinary files disclosed publicly to anyone. And they, they eliminated that, so now everyone across the state is filing FOIL requests to get those records, which are, can be significant in, uh, in lots of cases if they have a history of you know, police brutality or lying um, that, that's one huge change that happened very quickly. Um, well, there are other other changes that should happen too with with, the, with one, you know getting ac- victims getting access. One problem we have here is the statute of limitations on official misconduct, and that covers a gamut of officials. Uh, the statute of limitations is two years. So if a police officer covers up or ignores evidence or purposely doesn't do the job the way it should be done, then he, if he holds the information back from the family for two years, they don't even know that he, they can't do anything about it, can't do it criminally or civilly. So I, I think there should be no statute of limitations on official misconduct when a death is involved. Yeah, that's that would like cause a good them idea. to do the job to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea. You know. And, so, Larry, uh, that, that's one. Go ahead, Larry. What uh, what advice would you give to our listeners who would like, in their home state, would like to get something going as far as something maybe similar to Molly's Law? Um, how would you go about it? What did you do when you decided, you know, that something needed to be done? What was your first step? Toward getting Molly's law, I went to my uh, to the representative that represented the district where the crime happened. I couldn't vote for her, but I went to her because that was in her district, and I talked to her about the issues that we were having with trying to get information, and you know, and the general public at that time, including representatives, didn't even know that was going on, you know, that they were uh, uh, treating the family, the victim's family like they were. Uh, they treat the victim's family as if they're the public or a reporter. You know, you could be, they treat you the same as a general public. And even with the executor uh, or independent administrator papers, uh, you know, they still treat you 
on FOIA like you're a general public. There's nothing, in the, there was nothing in the laws to to make you any different to find the truth as a family than 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 the general public. Anybody could have, you know, treating us the exact same way. So that's when she realized that you know the laws need to be changed, especially after a wrongful death suit was denied because we didn't get any information through FOIA in, in time to get to file a wrongful death suit. You know, we followed it, but they they wouldn't even hear it because they said it was two years and three months. And st- at that time, it was two-year statute of limitations. So she decided to try to get a law passed to correct these laws. So she got her someone, her staff somewhere to research the laws. And one of them had to do with official misconduct. We tried that one. The strength, most stringent law in the United States at that time was two years after they leave their position. You could, they could be filed, you know, they could file a lawsuit against them that, or they could be held criminally and, you know, and uh, accountable for official misconduct. So we decided that one, we already had two years, so it wouldn't be better to get a law that would help in the four-year process than to go after the official misconduct one. So she got it passed unanimously in the House. And it passed unanimously in the Senate, and the uh, governor came to Carbondale where this ha- crime happened and uh, signed it signed it in front of all of Molly's family and friends. There are about 100 people there. So what I, I guess what I would say first, the first thing you got to do is research the laws yourself. You know, if you can't afford to hire an attorney, any, anybody can research them themselves now by Googling FOIA, uh, statute. Uh, uh, you could Google the, you know, wrongful death statute, the official misconduct statute, and see what they say right now. With that, and then talk to your represent, go to your representative, and because a lot of times they have cl- uh, clauses in those statutes already that you weren't aware of that you could use in your defense as a family member. Mm-hmm. But. Most of, most of them don't because no one's been ever standing up for the victim. No one's ever actually, there's no attorney doing the victim like there is a suspect. He gets one provided public defender if he don't have any money, and there's nobody, no such thing for the victim. So you got you to, gotta, as a family member, get proactive as soon as possible and and try to if it's been going on a long time, then you need to try to get laws changed because laws are definitely not in the the balance scales of the balance of the scales is heavily tipping in favor of the suspect. Right. And, and all because no one's ever been standing up for the victims. The prosecutor he stands up for the state of Illinois. He doesn't stand up for the victim. State of whatever state you're in. So. It's time to change that balance of scales by getting the laws changed. And the best way to do it is research it yourself, get familiar with the laws, and then go to your your uh, house, uh, your either house representative's person or or uh, assemblywoman, uh, assemblyman in uh, New York, isn't it? Uh, whoever, yeah, it's whoever whoever yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right now, we're working on a law. A crime happened in Chicago. Uh, suburb of Chicago, and we went to the representative in Chicago that represents that district and got the law introduced. I live four, 300 miles south of Chicago, so that he rep- he introduced the law. It's called Pam's Law, and it's and I went up and uh, in the set in the judicial committee hearing. That's where it starts. If they take the law and put it in, if it deals with criminal law. I guess any civil law too does. You put it into it takes it goes to the judicial committee. And a group of people hear witnesses and the representative talks about uh, why why they want the law passed. And they asked me questions. I went and testified, and they asked me questions about it. And I, I, that's the first step. If you can't get past the judicial committee, you can't even get it even it goes nowhere. It dies. Mm-hmm. 
don't don't you guys think that this, these issues we're talking about, when you have people being, I'm going to say, victimized, victimized by the system, um, that would seem to me that uh, you wouldn't find too many people well, people against that. Now, I think from a politician's point of view, that should be a rather uh, a no-brainer to want to get behind something like that to, to try to help people. Yeah. I mean. Uh, you know, so I would think it would be popular now. I do well, suppose, though, that you would have police unions that might oppose it because any anything that would open up to transparency, open up the open up the system. Uh, I would assume that the and, and I think it's uh, I think most cops are against malfeasance on the part of police, you know, bad apples, if you will. Uh, but I think to, to preserve their, their turf and their domain and their their privacy, um, they would be opposed to, even if, they, even if they don't support the bad apples, they would like to preserve the system as it is. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The thin blue line, or whatever you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, what do you think? That uh, I, I think the vast majority of cops are are good people. We rely on them for protection and so on. And uh, and even they would would not openly support or support the bad apples. But uh, I think they also want to look at they look at the bigger picture of uh, you know if we. Uh, we don't want to open the door to this, and uh, like John, you were just saying about the uh, disciplinary records being now available in New York. Um, I, I think this scares the hell out of uh, maybe some law enforcement. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely, it does. Even cops who are you know good cops probably don't want that because they fear what could happen down the road to them. I I, I don't know. It's uh, I, I don't think any cop would support opening up things. Um, although I had, I had one case, it was an extreme example of the state police um, withholding reports. It was a state trooper who was murdered on the side of the road and his family wanted the records to try to try to, you know, find some way to not let this happen to anybody else ever again. And the state police fought them for years on that. I've published a story on it, and the, and the police union actually supported releasing the records in that case. So it's, you know, it's hit and miss. And, uh, but um, you know, they finally got the records only after all the um, appeals were finished on the convicted killers. So I guess you know. Well, I would but, suggest uh, people, families that do – Go do for you on their own, not the uh, independent administrator or the father or mother or brother or sister. They research the FOIA statute and understand the timeline involved because there's a there's yes. a timeline that's involved that you got to yes. strictly adhere to at least as the victim. You don't as a public body, but you do as the requester. They call them. Well, so the requester adhere to a timeline too. No, they they don't make them adhere to it. I've went through that oh, for four really? years. Oh, here, here they do. Yeah, they got they're, by they're, with violating it. I don't know how many times. Really? Oh, they violate it. Yes, but there are deadlines they're yeah. supposed to keep, but they don't. I, I see what you're saying. Yes, the law yeah, says there's, there's rules that yeah. they're supposed to go by, but they 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 can yeah. they can ask for a extension. They can uh, deli- right. deny you because of uh, voluminous file. Uh, you know. There's all yeah. kinds of reasons we can try to get around it, even though that's not true. They're still doing it, you know. Oh, you know they yeah. use every excuse in the book, and then sometimes they ignore you completely. I've had them ignore yeah, you well, completely, well, not respond at all. Well, when they do that, when they ignore you completely, um, you can then appeal or go to court on the grounds that it was a construct. It's called a constructive denial if they just ignore you, and the courts and the the, the you know will accept that as. Well, they denied you. Going to court is, you know, going to court is oh, good yeah. if you got the money. Like, like, no, no, no. most people don't. Most majority of the people don't have that kind of money to our attorneys to no. milk, no. you know, milk the thing. Yeah, some attorneys will do a real good job, and others will 
dragging on for years. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to go back to the process in Illinois, I'll tell, I'll tell you what Illinois is. It's five year, five business days for them to respond. Yeah. Right. If they don't respond, it's considered an automatic denial. Yeah. And you don't have to pay for any records if you win the case after that. No. You don't have to pay for any records. That's another issue. They they try to charge people thousands of dollars for the records that cost twenty dollars to electronically produce. Right. So when you file a FOIL, everyone should know a FOIA or FOIL. You should in your request say, I I want these records electronically. I do not want paper. Paper will right. cost you a ton. If you say I want them electronically, they have to give them to you electronically on a CD or or scanned and emailed. That's very important now these days. Good point. Good point. And and that that also how you ask that question, you got to ask specific records, or they'll yes. just send you a, a, whatever they want to. You have to ask mm-hmm. uh, identify specific records, like the nine one one call, the the uh, interview, recorded interviews of the witnesses. Uh, you just got to think of every possible thing, even if you don't think they got it. You got to still ask for it. Right. Yeah. If you're overly broad, they will just say yeah. they can deny you on that ground. Yep. Yeah. If you're too general, they'll mm-hmm. they might just give you the pl- first police report, and that's all. Yeah. You know. And uh, if, just if, yeah. go ahead. I, I, I'm just trying to help them help people listening that yeah. yeah for you to understand how to do it then. After that five-day period, if they if they don't answer, it's an automatic denial. If they answer uh, eight days, they'll let them slide usually. Uh, if you uh, then you have seven days to respond to that, and you need to do it within seven business days, or or they'll kick you out for that. You know, right. so you got to you got need to know the timelines. What I'm saying uh, in the statutes, the, the statute will give you a timeline of how everything's supposed, to, what time limits you have. Right. Because a lot of people miss those. They yeah. give up or aren't prepared. They aren't prepared for that battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably in Illinois, you have the same thing. We have something called the Committee on Open Government. It's a state agency that. Um, lists all those deadlines for people online and also has a really helpful thing. Um, they, they, have, they, they post all of their advisory opinions on every, ca- on every case that they're called in on. So you, and the very, you can be very specific for the type of case you're looking for and look at what they said about that case and attach that to your FOIL request. It's yeah, lots I, I, of together. Uh, ProPublica, are you familiar with them? I'm sure. Yep. Yes. I went with them. I went on theirs for their. Uh, they did a long article on Molly's uh, law and FOIA and all that, and they they sent a reporter here and everything to my house in Southern Illinois. And we there's a long article on FOIA, and it's really good on how to process the FOIA system, what the failures are of, of it, and what needs to be done. Good. Check it out. You know, the, the time's flying by here, and before we run out of time, I, I wanted to just raise another issue, uh, and that is the uh, another avenue that I think should be available uh, fairly easily to a, to a survivor that has evidence that the investigation into their loved one's death was not properly done. Uh, whether it's witnesses not being interviewed, evidence not collected, uh, perhaps there was a bias on the, on the, that could be proved on the part of the uh, lead detective or the detectives, um, if, if they have a case that the investigation was not properly done and therefore they're being denied justice because of that, that they could present their case to another agency with jurisdiction. For example, if it's a, 
a, a city or village uh, police department involved, they could uh, ask the county. Or if it's a county agency, they could ask the state agency to come in and take a second look and basically review how the investigation had been handled to that point. And, uh, you know, if there are problems or were problems, that that other agency would be able to uh, to take action, reopen the case, or reactivate the case, and uh, and, and try to address the issues. Um, unfortunately, in New York and several other states, I can't say all, but several other states, uh, they have what I'm referring to as the by invitation only. Uh, so, and I'm not sure if it's a directive or a policy or a, a law. I'm not. I, I'm trying to track down exactly what it is. But what that does, it it precludes this next agency. In, in the case I'm working on, it would be a state agency uh, taking a look at what the county had done, um, and they can only get involved if they are invited in by the county agency directly, the county district attorney, or requests from the state attorney general's office. And it, it doesn't matter what evidence is there that the investigation was botched. It, it, it makes absolutely no difference. Uh, and obviously, uh, again, I'll refer to my case, the, the county agency has no real interest or benefit to want to invite in someone to look at to look at their activities, look at what they did, uh, because I think there would be, at the minimum, some embarrassment, uh, and possibly more than that. Um, and there's there doesn't seem to be an appeals process. So, so if if uh, you go to the state police and say, hey, we'd like you to take a take a look at what happened in such and such a county we 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 think we we think we got shafted on this deal uh, the state immediately says well we can't come in on your say so or on your request you have to have that agency ask them if they'll ask them to invite us in or the district attorney other than that you're going to have to go and get an, get us an order from the attorney general's, the state attorney general's office to intercede. So it, it, you know, again, the average person trying to take on, you know, going to the state attorney general, and I mean, it, it's just a nightmare. And I still can't find. I, I wanted to be able to read this, whatever it is, directive or policy or procedure or law, and I so far I haven't been able to find it, but. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Uh, just the concept that no matter how much evidence you have of, of misconduct or incompetence, it makes no difference. They, the next agency up the line can't do anything, and it, it just uh, you know talk about frustration. It's yeah, and you know the DAs are the most powerful people in every county, and and if you get a corrupt one in there who, uh, you know, wants to make himself look good or is, you know, afraid of embarrassing the police, they're never going to let another agency look at that case um, that we we had a problem with. We still have a problem with the DA in, the, in this county up here that didn't didn't want to look at the real truth to that kidnapping case I talked about. Um, but I just was looking up, New York State last year approved a law that would set up the, the country's first independent commission to investigate reports of misconduct by prosecutors, which isn't the same thing that you're talking about, but it, it gets at that, you know, getting past that invitation only. So um, they're trying to do something here. I don't know if it, it, it was, I mean, the governor approved the bill. I don't know where it went from there, but there is an effort. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, gentlemen, I, I, I'm sorry, Larry, I don't mean to, but we just ran out of time. We're going to be shut down here any second. I want to thank both of you so much for being with me today and, and sharing your insights. And uh, it, it's certainly been interesting. I'm sure the audience uh, appreciates uh, your efforts as well. So thanks a lot for being on. And uh, in the meantime, uh, 
for our listeners, we'll we'll be back in two weeks with another informational series, part three. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.